We're going through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and this morning we come to chapter 4. So if you'd like to turn there, if you're using a church Bible, it's page 1146, or in the larger print Bibles, 1773. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 to 17 of chapter 4. Paul says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, You do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. This is God's word. And in this passage, Paul is dealing with what it means to be a servant of God. 
And he has three things to say. Servants of God are accountable to God. Servants of God live cross-shaped lives. Servants of God are examples to follow. And there's a clear progression in the passage. What I mean is Paul starts by showing the Corinthians how they're to think about church leaders. In this case, that means himself and Apollos. Here's how to think of church leaders. But then he says, church leaders actually are not a special case. Every believer, every Christian is a servant of God. And so the lives of church leaders are to be examples of what every Christian's life is to be like. So this passage is helpful in two ways. It helps us think properly about church leaders and it helps us think about our own lives as servants of God. In terms of the background to what Paul says here, remember he's addressing actual things that are going on in this specific church. In many different ways, these people are not living like a fellowship of men and women who belong to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit of God. Last week in chapter 3, Paul described them as immature. When it comes to living out their faith, he's telling them they need to grow up. And the first area of immaturity he's dealing with is their attitude to leaders. And behind their attitude to leaders... There's their desire to be seen as impressive by this world's standards. They want those outside the church to be patting them on the back for being wise and eloquent and sophisticated people. And if the church is going to be seen like that by the world around it, then, well, it needs leaders the world is going to see as wise, eloquent, and sophisticated. And so the church members have been making judgments about their leaders, Some support Paul, some support Apollos, and some support Peter. Paul refers to him as Cephas in this letter. The church is arguing over which leader deserves the most coolness points. And Paul is going to show just how wrong that kind of thinking is. And the first way he corrects their thinking is by pointing to their own assessment of their leaders and saying, actually, that's very much beside the point what you think about the leaders. He says, servants of God answer to a higher authority. They are accountable to God. We saw last week how Paul painted church leaders in a very modest light. He called them only servants. And he repeats that again here in chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He's sticking with the point that church leaders are nothing in themselves. But notice how he adds something here. They are servants of Christ, the head of the church. And he says they are entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So yes, they're nothing in themselves, but their master and their message are as significant as it gets. What are the mysteries God has revealed? Well, Paul explained that in chapters 1 and 2. It's the truth that God has defied human wisdom. He's defied human ideas about power by bringing salvation through a crucified Savior. God has provided salvation in a way that human wisdom will not accept. 
Salvation can only be received as we humble ourselves and accept the way of God's wisdom. That this man, Jesus, crucified in shame and dishonor, is our only way to know God and be delivered from sin and death. Those are the mysteries Paul is talking about. It's the message of the cross. And here he says, think of your church leaders like this. They're not ultimately serving you. They're serving Christ. And they're not here to serve your agenda either, Paul says. Or your idea of what church leaders should be about. Or what message they should be preaching. No, they have been entrusted with, literally they are stewards of, the mysteries God has revealed. Today we don't use the word steward very much. If we do use it, we tend to use it for people who help you find your seat at the football or the pantomime. But in New Testament times, a steward was in charge of overseeing somebody else's property. Today we might call them an estate manager. So, for example, a servant might be given responsibility for their master's finances, the budget, the bills, and the accounts. Or they might be given responsibility for the day-to-day running of his household. The steward didn't own any of it. It was all their masters, but he had entrusted it to them. And they were responsible to their master for what they did with it. And in verse 2, Paul sums up the one requirement of a steward. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust or a stewardship must prove faithful. Faithful to who? To the other household servants? To the people who come to visit the house? No, faithful to their master. He's the boss. They work for him and they answer to him. And so if you're going to make a judgment about a steward... You don't bother about whether he pleases the other servants or the visitors. If he's faithful to his master, then he is a good steward. Faithfulness to his master is all that matters. And applying that to church leaders, the point is, they're not ultimately supposed to be pleasing the world or pleasing the church. They're supposed to be faithful to God. They're not supposed to be original thinkers or motivational cheerleaders or growth strategists. They're supposed to be reliable stewards of the message of the cross. The gospel about Jesus that defies human pride and brings eternal salvation to those who accept it. So one writer sums it up like this. The servants of Christ have a fundamental charge laid on them. They have been entrusted with the gospel. And all their service turns on making that gospel known and on encouraging the people of God by word, example, and discipline to live it out. If church leaders do that, they are faithful. If they fail to do that, they are unfaithful no matter how impressive or energetic or popular they might be. 
And so in verse 3, Paul says to these Corinthian believers who've been giving him and Apollos marks out of ten for presentation or giftedness or personality, he says to them in verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. At the start of verse 3, when Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court, literally the text says, any human day. Meaning, any day of human judgment has to take second place to the day of God's judgment. That's when there will be a true assessment of Paul's service. Now, it's very important to stop and realize Paul is not arguing here that church leaders can never be held to account by the church. That kind of untouchability in leaders leads to all kinds of abuses. And most of us have seen it. When leaders use their accountability to God as a kind of trump card to stop people asking questions about their lifestyle or the way that they handle money. But we know from Paul's own practice, that's not what he's advocating. Paul was scrupulous about having others monitor his life. He always had colleagues traveling with him. And when he carried financial gifts from one church to another, he invited people from the giving church to come with him as he delivered their gifts. And he didn't just have himself monitored. In general, he calls churches to step in and take action when there's immoral behavior or there's false teaching going on. Paul expects the church to deal with unrepented sin. We'll see that very clearly next week when we go into chapter 5. So Paul is not downplaying the need to be answerable to others. But he is making clear what church leaders are answerable for. They're answerable for their faithfulness to God. And they are faithful to God if they're good stewards of the message of the crucified Savior. And that means church leaders are not to be judged on their originality or their ability to draw a crowd or their skill in trying to please all of the people all of the time. According to Paul, those are bogus criteria. Assessments based on those criteria are bogus. What counts in a servant of God is faithfulness to God. And that is measured by faithfulness to the message God has entrusted to his servants. Paul is making clear what leaders are answerable for and he's pointing out in these verses whatever provisional judgments you and I might make about them here and now only God sees the whole picture. Only God then can give the definitive perfectly accurate judgment of his servants. 
And God's assessment of us counts more even than our own assessment of ourselves. Notice right after Paul says he's not too bothered about how other humans judge him, he immediately adds in verse 3, I don't even judge myself. In other words, how I feel about my ministry isn't what ultimately matters either. I might feel really good about it. I might feel horribly depressed about it. Currently, he says in verse 4, I have a clear conscience about it. I'm not aware of any way I'm obviously defying God. Or any way that I'm obviously being, being unfaithful to the stewardship he's giving me. But Paul says, I know I might be self-deceived in that. So I'm not the final judge of my ministry any more than you Corinthians are. God's judgment trumps mine as well as yours. Because in the middle of verse 5, when the Lord returns, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Why is God's judgment the only judgment that truly counts? Because he not only sets the criteria for faithfulness, he's also the only one able to discern the motives of the heart. He sees when our service was outwardly impressive to other people, but it came from a proud, self-serving heart. And he sees when our service was a total flop outwardly, but it came from a heart sincerely seeking to promote the message of the cross. And so after we've put in all the caveats that we want, all the clarifications about being answerable to one another and examining our own hearts, after we've acknowledged those things have a part to play, we have to be clear, we are not the final judges of one another or even of ourselves. Servants of God are accountable to God. And so what we seek is not a well done from the church or even a well done from our own hearts. What we seek is a well done from God our Savior because we've been faithful to him by promoting the message of the crucified Savior. We noticed earlier this applies to all servants of God. But Paul starts by talking about church leaders. And the reason is the Corinthian church seemed to think they were the authoritative judges of the church leaders. And they were using the wrong criteria to make their judgments. So in verse 6, Paul sums up this first section by saying, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. That phrase, do not go beyond what is written, it seems to be another way of saying don't go beyond Scripture by making up your own standards for what faithfulness looks like. It is written is a common new way the New Testament writers refer to the Old Testament. And already in this letter, Paul has quoted quite a few times from the Old Testament. And he's done that to explain the wisdom of God 
that upends the wisdom of this world. So do not go beyond what is written means stick to God's wisdom. Don't bring the wisdom of this age into the church and use it to make judgments about God's servants. Stick to God's criteria. And it would be a great idea, I think, if all of us had a poster or a plaque up on our walls reminding us every day, do not go beyond what is written. Another way to put it would be, keep to the book. When we think about the success or failure of our lives or the church, we all need to learn not to go beyond what is written. During the last World Cup, the England manager Gareth Southgate explained his approach to management or coping with management. He said he'd learned years ago that when things are going well, you're never as good as people say you are. And when things are going badly, you're never as rubbish as people say you are. He was refusing to set too much store by what other people said or thought about him. And as Christians, we're to have a similar approach, but we go further and we say, not only do I not get carried away with what other people think about me, I don't get carried away with what I think of myself, positively or negatively. Instead, I care deeply about what God says. I'm accountable to him. And so I will take on board his definition of a faithful life because faithfulness to him is my goal, my only goal. Then in verses 7 to 13, Paul develops this a bit more. He says, servants of God live cross-shaped lives. We've seen how the Corinthians felt qualified to sit in judgment over Paul and the other leaders, listing the pros and cons of each one, giving them marks out of ten for this and that. And part of the reason they felt qualified to judge was because of their own pride. They thought they'd arrived. They thought they were wise and impressive people. And hadn't God confirmed that by giving them the full whack of spiritual gifts in the church? And weren't their lives going pretty well? They weren't suffering. No one was persecuting them. Wasn't that a sign of God's approval? That was the attitude in the Corinthian church. And that's the background to what Paul says next. Verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? In other words, yes, you do have the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, but it wasn't your own greatness that earned you those things. They're from God. And so he goes on in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. In these verses... Paul is going to describe the Corinthians as they see themselves. And maybe he's overstating a bit for effect. He's certainly being pretty sarcastic in what's coming up. 
But he wants them to see how puffed up they are. Inflated with a sense of their own maturity and wisdom and prosperity. And how well they're fitting in with the culture around them. And in contrast to that, Paul wants them to think about the lives of Christ's messengers, the apostles. So picking up in the middle of verse 8, he says, How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. The main picture Paul uses in these verses is one that would have been well known to the Corinthians. The open air theater in Corinth, we're told by historians, seated 18,000 people. And when there was a gladiator show, the last event, the climax of the program, was when they shoved in the condemned criminals who then had to fight to the death in the arena. Paul says, You, Corinthians, believe you're reigning like royalty. You believe it's your right to have an easy life and to have everyone looking up to you. But Paul says, here's how I live. Here's how my fellow apostles live. Our lives are marked by struggle and lack and disgrace in the eyes of the world. In verse 12, Paul mentions working hard with his own hands. He's referring to his trade as a tent maker. He sometimes went back to that work when he was helping to establish a new church in a city. He did that so he wouldn't be a financial burden on this group of young Christians. Now, we might think that's a positive thing. But in the culture of the time, it was seen as a disgrace for a teacher to get his hands dirty like that. Common work. It was seen as a sign of his failure as a teacher, that he couldn't support himself just by his teaching. And so the fact that Paul was willing to work as a tradesman, that may actually have been why some people in the church looked down on him. Tent making. That was often done by slaves. How could Paul be that good of a leader and teacher if he did such demeaning labor to support himself? The Corinthian Christians were viewing Paul the way the unconverted world views him, as a loser. In fact, Paul puts it more strongly than that in verse 13. The NIV translates it, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. That's a bit too polite. The excrement of the world gets nearer to what Paul is saying. 
We're dirt in the eyes of the world, he says. That's how the world sees him and his fellow apostles. And he wants the Corinthians to realize that's how the world saw Jesus Christ. The Bible says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was oppressed and afflicted. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Much of the language Paul uses here about the apostles is echoing things the scripture says about Jesus Christ. And the significance is, servants of God, specifically servants of Christ, as Paul puts it in verse 1, servants of Christ will live lives that to some degree follow in his steps and share in his sufferings. That doesn't mean we go looking for suffering and affliction. But it does mean we don't think something's wrong if we go through suffering and affliction. We don't think it's odd if the world that hates Jesus happens to hate us too. And we don't think that praise from this world and prosperity and health in this world are proof we're being faithful to God. That apparently is what the Corinthians thought. But they were wrong. Their lives were full of spiritual immaturity and full of the wisdom of this world that they'd brought with them into the church. And so they needed to change their outlook. They needed to grasp that the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. The world in its wisdom, he's told us, crucified the Lord of glory. That's what they thought was wise. And so this world might dish out some of the same to us. As we follow the man of sorrows, as we follow him, we can expect some sorrows to come our way as well. The apostles certainly experienced that. And the Corinthians needed to change their outlook on being humiliated and cursed and dishonored by this world. They needed to grasp that faithful servants of God will to some extent live cross-shaped lives. And so finally in this passage... The kind of servants of God we've been talking about, those who seek to be faithful to God above all else, those who are serious about being stewards of the gospel message, sharing it and living it out, those who are willing to share in Christ's sufferings, servants of God like that are examples to follow. Verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In this letter, Paul will often speak pretty bluntly to these men and women. 
Sometimes, as we've seen, he'll use a dose of sarcasm to get his point across. But Paul's aim in this letter is not to crush the Corinthians. It's to lead them to change and maturity in Christ. In verse 14, the word warn might be better translated with the older word admonish. It means to correct them and encourage them in the right way. And in verse 15, Paul's aim is not to try and undermine other leaders. That would go against his whole point. He's simply showing them what his motivation is. No matter how many other leaders they benefit from, he views them with a particular fatherly affection. Because it was during his first visit to Corinth that they received new spiritual life. That's when the church in Corinth started. And so, as Paul writes to them, he views them as a father views his dearly loved children. And that's the context for his statement in verse 16 when he says, I urge you to imitate me. Now, we might raise our eyebrows at that. Does Paul think he has arrived? Has he fallen into the trap he's been rebuking the Corinthians for, thinking he's the bee's knees? Well, notice what he says in verse 17. Timothy will remind the Corinthians of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus. In chapter 11, Paul is going to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, don't become my disciples, but where you see evidence that I am following Christ, then follow me as I am following him. Now Paul does not expect these people to all to suffer the same way that he suffers. A lot of what Paul went through was specific to his own calling and his own circumstances. Nor does he expect all these believers to become traveling evangelists or church planters or even preachers but he does expect them to re-examine their attitudes and the kind of wisdom they're living by. He does expect them to center their lives around the message of the cross. He does expect them to take seriously the fact that the servants of Christ have a fundamental charge laid on them. They have been entrusted with the gospel and all their service turns on making that gospel known. And on encouraging the people of God by word, example, and discipline to live it out. And where the Corinthians see evidence of that in Paul's own life, they are to learn from him and follow his good example. And you and I are to do the same. Every single one of us who belongs to Jesus is a servant of God. It doesn't matter if we have a leadership position or not. And so every single one of us is to take that fact seriously in the way we live. And that includes learning from good examples when we see them. It also includes being careful to set a good example ourselves. It's often pointed out today that people in the public eye, particularly athletes, are examples 
whether they want to be or not. You can't opt out of being an example. The question is, are they a good example or a bad one? And that's true in the church as well. You and I are examples. People do take notice of our lives and our words. So let's ask ourselves, in terms of what we've heard from this passage, am I a good example or a bad one? Do I live my life like someone who is accountable to God for the way I live? For the kind of relationships I get involved in? For the way I treat other people? In the way I live, do I show a desire to be faithful to God above all else? Does my life show a willingness to follow in the steps of the crucified Savior? Even if that means I share a tiny little bit of his suffering. And as you and I consider this, let's remember those who follow Christ will one day reign with him. They will one day be honored by him. The Corinthians were expecting their reign to start now. They were expecting the honor to come now. And in fact, they were looking in the the wrong place for their honor. But faithful servants of God will one day reign with God and we will one day be honored by God. So as we think about what it means to be a servant of God, Let's remember the words of the missionary Jim Elliot. He lost his life for the sake of Christ. He was killed on a beach in South America. Speared by some tribesmen, he was trying to reach with the message of Christ. And Jim Elliot once wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Even if you and I could manage to win the praise of this world and the rewards of this world, we cannot keep those things. But if we're willing to let those things go to be faithful servants of God, then we are gaining things we cannot lose. The well done of our God and a place in his eternal kingdom. It makes sense to let go of lesser things in order to gain greater things. And that is our calling as servants of God. Let's respond to what we've heard from God's word as we sing together, Beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand.